and welcome to More Like Guidelines, an actual play game design podcast. I am your host, Jessica Crimes, she, her. And from our regular cast, today I am joined by... Hello, I am Kendall, he, him. Hello, I'm Kat, they, them. And we are joined by some very special guests, if you would care to introduce yourselves. Hey, I'm Amy, he, they. And I'm Roz, she, her. We all have something in common, don't we? Sure. So, um, several of us at six, I don't know as much about the project as you do. I've only written for it. Uh, we have created a, a game anthology called Pretentious Games for Villains and Bastards. Uh, Jess, would you like to say who is in it? There are nine games in total in this book. Two of them are by me. We have one by the magical, mysterious Cat Elm, one by MacGuffin and Company, which is Johnny Sims and Sasha Sienna, who you may know from the internet. We have one by our dear friend here, Candle. We have one by Amy, one by Roz, of course, they're on the show. We have one by musical comedians Jolly Boat, uh, which is just really cool. And finally, we have one that was actually made on this very podcast by myself, Goji, and games journalist slash accessibility advocate slash streamer, Laura K. Buzz. Uh, That is nine games by just over a dozen people in total, I reckon. Uh, Most of which are trans, we have come to realise. Yay! Nine games, I said six, I got it wrong. Uh, We have basically decided today we're not going to be playing anything. We are going to be answering some audience questions from our beloved patrons. Uh, talking about game design, talking about Kickstarter, things like that. And then just having a chat about the book, give you some more info on some of the games. Yes, because the Kickstarter is launching when, Jess? Uh, It launched yesterday, when you hear this, or tomorrow, (laughs) when we're recording this. I'm going to have to edit an entire podcast on the day that the Kickstarter comes out. Shit. Stop you from refreshing the page. Oh, that's true. It'll stop me from constantly checking if the total's updated. Right, yeah, let's get into some listener questions. Our first couple of questions come from How, They, Them on the DHB Discord server, which you can find by going to at DHB underscore games on Twitter, or asking one of us. <laughs> no, not one of our guests. Don't bother them. Uh, Hal's first question is, and this is for everyone who'd ever like to chime in first, what is your most common complaint or pet peeves with TTRPG systems slash settings? And how does that influence your game making? One thing I am going to note first, though, is I would say that's two very different questions. My common complaints with systems and settings, I've got a lot of both, but they're different. <laughs> You're just full of grapes. There's always one that like gets me immediately. Hit points. Uh, always bother me because whenever a character is in battle and they get wounded, I feel like there needs to be more consequences than they lose a few hit points. Because so, like they get hit in the arm, they should. I, I just, I just, I just feel like there should be more consequences for injuries taken in battle. I know that's really specific. No, I'm with you. Um, you me. you know I have a gripe against hit points because the only hit point that matters is the last one. The rest of them are all meaningless. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to just start picking on people. Kat, do you have any particular TTRPG system or setting gripes? 
things you like to see? I hate when games don't have a quick start because I will read your 250 page book and I'll have an amazing time and then as soon as I finish that last page I will forget every single thing that I have just read uh, and I will not retain any of the information um, and I would like to be treated like a child and given a piece of paper with all the things on it. I, I like same ideally you know color coded maybe a floor chart um... <laughs> if they could be pictures <laughs> yeah no that's absolutely fair uh Roz do you have any thoughts on this I'm gonna I'm gonna take that one further if your if your game is 250 pages it's not making it past my uh like shopping cart there's n- no way I'm gonna spend any time reading that much game Especially if it's... Doesn't pass your smell test. Yeah, especially if it's all rules. You don't need that many rules. Oh, 100%. Subsystems would probably be mine. Like, unnecessary subsystems, where you basically feel like you're playing a mini-game. I love mini-games. Oh. Mini-games I love. It's... I'm also going to log I'm on different. here. I'm going to log on here as the hit point enjoyer as well. Oh, the hit point enjoyer is logged <laughs> on. The hit point enjoyer right. has logged on. There's not been a better uh, solution yet. I don't think. Uh, explain yeah. to me, Roz, why why do you enjoy hit points? Why do I enjoy? Well, it's it's. I think it's it's easy to track. It's pretty intuitive, um, and whether it's video games' fault or not, uh, or whether it predates video games, which actually it might. But uh, everybody just in like I feel like most people just understand them, and I feel like it cuts down mm-hmm. on onboarding to a game it's just like you've got six hp it's like cool i can take six or so hits until i'm dead good to know that makes sense i think it makes more sense to me as a as a function if you think of hit points as sort of armor points so in the universe of the game you're not actually getting hit it's how lucky you are until you do get hit i think that works yeah you've got cure light wounds as a spell yeah yeah and also an armor class which includes dodging. That's why, uh, just to, to tease a little bit, in my game, there are no hit points. It's either you are fine or you are dead. I'm not sure <laughs> if there are any hit points in the book off the top of my head. Yeah, I definitely didn't put my money where my mouth was there. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think any of us did. No, I, did, I can't. Well, you'll have to wait and see. <gasps> yes. I have something because I... I meticulously wrote a quick start page, so I am sticking to my guns. That's fair. Uh, I've got trash points instead of hit points. They're interesting, I promise. (laughs) Amy, do you have any thoughts on TTRPG system or setting gripes, complaints? My main complaint is that I hate when I open a game that looks really cool and I can't read it because they did a bunch of funky fonts and they did a bunch of stylistic things and my brain doesn't work that way. Sort of like, cat. I am a child, and I need you to lay things out in clear and simple terms that a baby could understand. I can't read your pretty fonts most of the time. I like the way they look, but if they're all crammed together on the page, I'm not going to be able to read them, and it's just going to be bad for everyone. That's that's my main one. It just fills me with so much rage. God. Times New Roman or Ariel, please. Mm. Please, all the time, forever. I am a minimalist... I like things to be neat. I like them to be like laid out. I've got to yeah. Learn. One big thing yeah. that I've learned since doing my last Kickstarter uh, that was honestly a pretty big mistake is there wasn't an accessible version of the PDF. And now I am a huge believer on if you're making a game, 
give people who buy the book the PDF because, you know, they've bought the game, let's be cool. That's not something I'm going to be as stringent on for everyone. I don't necessarily, I'm not going to demand, I'm not going to boycott a game because they don't do that, but it's something that I do. But one that I do think everyone should be doing is giving accessible versions of games, making accessible PDFs, things like that. Language is important. Yeah. Uh, So, of course, um, pretentious games, any physical copy comes with a PDF and all PDFs, including the physical ones, including the ones that come with physical copies, get you that uh, accessible PDF. Did you ever... Yeah, there's a plug. Did you ever try to read Morkborg, Amy? I have been reading it because I'm playing it right now, and it is... I love it. I love it so much. It rules unreadable some pages <laughs> just unreadable i look at it and i go oh that looks really cool i don't know what it says but it looks cool i guess that's how i feel about my boyfriend's handwriting <laughs> we've got off on a really negative footing haven't we <laughs> can i can i make one final ttrpg complaint uh, Kath, i know you and microphone. i know it will not be your final complaint <gasps> I'm hurt and winded. I'm a very positive person. Um, I hate money. <gasps> yeah, that's a good one. And I hate, I... I hate when players have money, and I hate when then they want to go on a fucking shopping trip. <gasps> oh, and I then love they the shopping want trip. me to do. <laughs> then they want me to do trip. like seventeen tradesperson voices yes. while they rummage around various yes. shops. And then I have to be like, and that costs. 41 gold mm-hmm. and 13 silver and 3 copper. It is oh, yes. Yes. the okay, best. No, I, so good. I love it. Kat, you're yeah. speaking from experience as the GM hating oh, the Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, see, I wasn't thinking of it as an in-character shopping trip. I was thinking of it as the players pouring over, you know, the list of things they could buy. I'm not doing shopkeeper voices. I don't have the range. <laughs> No, I have found hey. that it's very helpful to make the other players do the shopkeeper voices and just make them chat with each other so that I don't have to do anything while they shop for a Jess, few minutes. Aren't the first three episodes of Goblins and Guesswork you coming up with different shopkeeper voices? And have you bought a single fucking thing? Have you had that option? <laughs> no, you haven't. You've been spending the entire campaign going around different shops where you've not actually been able to buy anything other than the occasional cube of odd meat. But that's a different uh, show on this feed. Let's get to another question. Uh, We will go for a question from Emery Corandite on the DHB Discord. When you play test a game, what do you like to test for? I mean, I'll I'll field this one Uh, for to start with. I think there's really only one thing worth testing for, and that's if everybody's having fun. I disagree. Whoa. Hey, Ooh. I want people to be miserable. Miserable, miserable games for villains and bastards coming to you soon. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important that everyone's having fun, but I think one thing that I also look out for is how easy it is to pick up and play and how 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 easy it is to parse the rules. How much do I have to consult the rule book for, like, some kind of technicality? I do three kinds of playtesting, depending on the project and the stage that the project's at, um, and... I'll often like run them overlapping simultaneously, things like that. Uh, but the three the three tests that I like to do are one for the vibes, which is your is everyone having fun test? Does this game have the right energy that I was trying to you know 
make it put out there? And does it seem like it might have the propensity to steer in an alarming direction that I've not considered? Which is, you know, something that can happen when you're playing with, you know, storytelling games. Yeah. Um, mm. Is that a good uh, thing or a bad thing? Oh, no. You, you want... You don't want your players to feel steered into uncomfortable topics that aren't expressly promised by the game. Right. Uh, the other the other two would be testing the actual mechanics, testing the odds, testing the dice rolls, because quite often I do choose to just model that in fucking Python or something. But it helps to get a real feel of how often a max roll or a minimum roll is coming up. And also just to kind of make sure that this plus one is balanced against this, against this minus one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my favorite one is ideation play testing, which is when I just turn up, normally candles there for ideation play tests. Yeah. I just turn up with an idea of what I'm making, the loosest possible rules. And basically every five minutes, the rules of the play test are changing. And I'm just trying out as many different mechanics as possible, as fast as possible to see which feel like. Play storming. But that play storming, play is that storming. a term? Yeah, sure. It is now. Uh, I've not yeah, heard that. I mean, I, uh, I sometimes I feel very old because I was around in like G plus days when everybody was there. Well, not everybody, but there was quite a few people talking about playstorming and just like, you know, cutting bits and pieces from different games. So they're like, I like this bit and I like this bit and I like this bit. And then sitting down and you're like, we're playing a game now. Let's see what happens. I'm, I'm only 12, but it sounds like that would have been my absolute jam. <laughs> Uh, would anyone else like to share anything about their approach to playtesting? I know we have very varying levels of experience with playtesting here, but if anyone has anything they'd like to add. I'm for hilariously me, inexperienced. For me, Candle, you can't keep saying that. You're on a podcast. <laughs> you've got a book coming out. You've been loads of playtests. Oh, I don't feel that way. I'm sorry. I'm going to let No one ever does. <laughs> For me, it's the extremely obvious thing uh, that I have completely missed, and when it comes up, it just totally fails, and the game can't progress because I have written a mechanic so badly. Uh, that comes up quite often. Yeah, yeah, that would be my fear playtesting a game. You know, because it made sense when you wrote it. There was once a game where it took until the actual playtesting phase for me to realise I'd forgotten to put in any rules. So it's an important step. <laughs> like just, there was character creation, you got stats and things. But at some point, and this was when I was working a lot of late nights on games and things, <laughs> I just finished the game without putting in any mechanics. Jess, which game was this? Uh, it was the Cats one, I think. Oh, the game yeah, based on Cats the Musical. Yes. Before you realize you've just made a setting, yeah. Basically, I suppose, yeah. Uh, this question again is from Hal. Uh, Kat, you mentioned wanting to rant about this one, so I'm going to let you kick it off. Mm, what do you do when you have a great idea and then realize it's just a variation of something you've made already? Okay, listen. They have made Spider-Man like 20 times and people keep buying it and reading the comics, and watching the movies, and playing games. They remastered a Spider-Man game that came out in the last 10 years and didn't re- need remastered, and it topped the charts. I'm going to make my fucking game again. <laughs> yeah, sorry, how many fucking dungeons and or dragons are there? There's not enough. Too many. Well, no, people like it. 
Exactly. If people like it, then who are you to say, oh, it's been done before, so I can't do it again? Uh, I horribly misread this question until right now. And I assumed it was asking, what do you feel, like, how do you feel when you think you have a great idea and then you realize someone else has made it, which can be definitely trickier. Shall we answer that one too? Might as well. Just do it. You're... I mean, you do it, yeah, and then you make it. sure that one key thing is different. Just this be is, cool. This is something that I've run into a lot, it, not in game design specifically, but like in writing, uh, where you have an idea and then you realize it's been done before, either by someone else specifically or just a million times in a million different ways. The only thing that matters is no one can do the idea exactly the way you're going to do it. As long as you make sure that you're doing it from your own creativity... That's not the only thing. Yeah, design from the heart. Think of them yeah. as parallels, not you know mirror images. Exactly. And don't don't plagiarize, obviously. Well, yeah. Yeah. There's no such thing as original anything. Every single story concept that has ever existed has been done before somebody's thought of it. And really, like, it's art is just stealing the stuff you like anyway. And making it, mashing it all together until it's a different thing that's yours. Yeah. So I, I feel like you should just be cool about it. Just go for it. Everything's been done. Nothing matters. That's the real take. And we'll take a break there. <laughs> and welcome back. Let's get straight back into it with our next question, which is, so making a Kickstarter is easy, right? But seriously, were there steps or obstacles that you had not considered before? I know that uh, not a huge number of people on this call have actually run a Kickstarter, but I imagine you've all learned something about the process, if that makes sense. Uh, Roz, I know you've definitely run one. I'm not sure about anyone else. Uh, Yeah, um, there was a lot of things I learned about the process uh, when I ran my ZineQuest Kickstarter. Uh, The main one being, it's a bad website. Oh, it's a bad website that doesn't work. It doesn't work, and they they drag their heels, and there is no way to get in touch with anybody. Um, this is unless not th- unless unless someone from Kickstarter is listening to this episode and is thinking, should we make this a featured project? In which yeah, case, this is yeah, a project I'll love, say right? Kickstarter is great. Yeah, I will say uh, I looked into running a Kickstarter a couple of years ago, uh, and I ran my first Kickstarter almost exactly a year ago. Um, And between those two time periods, the website did get a lot, lot better. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not just setting that because I'm running a Kickstarter. It has got more features that that are getting a lot better. It seems to be getting more stable. And yeah, I... Yeah, um, it's definitely definitely helped uh, my work reach an audience that I absolutely wouldn't have. I would definitely recommend doing ZineQuest for sure. Um, I think that was a really uh, a really good experience, um, but just yeah, I don't know a lot of the, a lot of the admin. I didn't realize how much exactly how much admin there was going to be. Still haven't figured out how I'm going to do my taxes. If the HMRC are listening <laughs> to this, I have figured out how to do my taxes. Oh, um, fuck my taxes. Yeah, taxes. Forgot about um, my taxes. Um. Candle, you've been around Kickstarter a lot. Is there anything about the process you've picked up that you wouldn't have expected i actually i have been part of a kickstarter before we met jess or around the time that we met uh it was a a short story anthology 
Oh, of course. I thought that was Indiegogo. There was an Indiegogo that was successful. There was a Kickstarter that was not successful. And that's the main thing that I'm going to say, because uh, the main thing that I have learned about Kickstarter, which should be relatively intuitive, but like my hopeful little ass didn't didn't really register, is they can fail. Oh, and yeah. It's sad. Then you need to be prepared, like actually prepared as a reality for a Kickstarter to fail. Yeah. And I remember when, when this particular Kickstarter did fail, it was it was interesting because we were in a private chat. We were, you know, watching the numbers not quite adding up. And there was just this sort of air of solemnity and, and eventually just resignation. Uh, and it was sad, but the, the, the big takeaway was, yeah, this happens. The only thing you can do is pick up and try again. 100%. And honestly, Kickstarters fail constantly and it's not always because the project wasn't up to snuff quite often it'll be the marketing the outreach the actual campaign page you have to get right a lot of things like that yeah i can say that like all of the stories in this in this anthology were were dynamite and it was actually a sequel to one that had succeeded before it just it just wasn't happening this time around and just like the first part we have kicked off on a gloomy note (laughs) This has been a fun conversation to have the day before our launch of Kickstarter. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Share my knowledge. No, it's, it's a very, very good point that needs to be made. Uh, does anyone else have anything they'd like to add on the topic of unexpecting things about the Kickstart process? All right. In that case, we're going to jump to our next question. Um. Yeah, let's use this as a bit of a launching off point to talk about the book itself and the games that you wonderful people are making for it. The question is, how do you think your game or games in Pretentious Games for Villains and Bastards is played best? Are we going to have to go in order for this? We're going to have to go in order for this one. Uh, Kat, would you like to start us? Ooh, I'd love to. Um, My game, so... You're only allowed to play it if you roleplayed on forums in the early 2010s. I can confirm this. Um, it really that is, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really does improve the experience. <laughs> um, I guess that the Warrior Cats kids, I've heard about a lot about Warrior Cats Discord RP. I, I, they yeah. are allowed. Um, but that's pretty much it. Um, of course, I joke. Basically, mine is a Mary Sue creation game uh where you then run around as the mary sue and are ridiculous and i think it's best played with a little bit of that like self-insert power fantasy fandom sorry just didn't catch that it's very indulgent it is very indulgent this is the game sorry go ahead uh, if you take yourself too seriously uh, it's just not going to be fun this was the game where we were playtesting it, and I remember a couple of us said, because it was like me, you, and Candle were in that particular playtest, we were saying that we desperately wish we were recording it, because it was just so mm-hmm. easy to be so funny. I actually, everyone in this call has playtested my game, so I would love for you to give a brief rundown of your characters. Oh, that's fun. Uh, I can start. I can't quite remember the name of my character. It was something like the Hellshard Hook. I played the Hellfire Hook. The Hellfire <laughs> Hook. I played as a magic weapon that possessed whoever picked it up. 
because somehow that's where the character creation process led me. It's a wild game. So I was playing as this magical hook, body hopping from person to person throughout the game. I I, uh, I played this just last night, actually, uh, and I resurrected a, a real, actual uh, Gaia Online forum character that I uh, that I had just, like, sitting within the deep, deep recesses of my mind, just waiting to be reawoken. Uh, and I played as Ransom, the half-demon, half-angel, outcast from both heaven and hell. Uh, oh, he's perfect. Uh, oh my god, he, I love it. He wields uh, the lance so of Longinus, uh, and was able to summon it from his pendant card captor Sakura style. Um... And uh, yeah, it was really some of the most effortlessly fun role playing I've I've done in so long. Um, it was yeah, it was really incredible. Oh, this yeah, game's I... called Protagonish. I need to say that. Oh, I should have said that. My yeah. game is called Protagonish. <laughs> it's like protagonist, but with a ish. Because everyone's the protagonist. Ish, kind of. Uh, sorry, Amy. Oh, no, I spent my night last night uh, arguing with Ransom, the (laughs) half-angel, half-devil, the entire time. As Lexi, the air queen goddess to the universe. Except right now she's just a teenage girl, and she's devastatingly ordinary, but all the guys like her anyway. And... Let's see. She had a magical anime girl transformation... She had some cool fight scene kicks while wearing high heels. She was very good at fighting and also very good at being nice and charming and cool. But, like, not in an annoying way where she was full of herself, of course. Mm. And there's definitely nothing between her and Ransom and they hate each other. They hate each other. They're terrible. You can tell how compelling this character creation and the game itself are from the fact that we're so desperate to tell you about our characters from these one-shots. That's it, though. I kept swapping between first and third-person perspective because I was getting so, like, (laughs) caught up in the drama. And also, I guess I was channeling my bad writing skills from when I was 14. I'm going to have to arrange for a game of this to be on the podcast, definitely. Oh, Oh, you have to. Please, get me on. I would love to reprise Ransom. Once again. Open invite to everyone on this call. Um, Amy, sorry, no. Oh, no, we're done with that, but yeah. Uh, Amy, would you tell us anything about, how was it phrased, how your game in the anthology is played best, and a little bit about what your game is? Yeah, so my game is called Slasher, and it is a game that allows you to play out a slasher movie, which is one of my most favourite genres of movie ever. Um, it is best played, I think, probably at like 11pm with a sleepover kind of vibe where you all just want to yell at each other for a couple hours. Um, it is best played if you like scary horror movies and you don't want to take them too seriously. Sort of the whole point is to lean into those character tropes as absolutely ridiculous as possible. You will be rewarded for leaning into those character tropes, but you will also probably, almost certainly, end up dying a terrible, grisly death. So this is a game for people who like to kill off their characters, and like to do it in the most dramatic, gross way possible. Which, I always enjoy playing out character deaths, personally. 
So I, I wanted to give everybody else the option to also give themselves terrible, terrible ends with possibly cool one-liners. What's really cool about Slasher as well is that you are essentially mechanically rewarded, sounds a bit like blunt, but you know what I mean, like mechanically encouraged to steer your character towards their inevitable demise by playing into these horror tropes, which I think is a really nice little twist on it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of the point of horror movies is you go in knowing that everybody's gonna die. So That's fair. Ultimately, the goal was you should create your character knowing that you're probably gonna die, but you might as well have some fun before that happens. So it is it definitely incentivizes you to embrace your terrible, terrible fate. Does uh, does the final girl survive? Is that a spoiler? The final girl is one of the archetypes. They don't necessarily have to be the one who survives, but I, I would say they maybe have a little bit of an advantage in surviving. Candle, what can you tell us about Rats in the Walls? One of the games we've been a bit more public with a couple of the details on so yeah. far. So Rats in the Walls is uh, a game that sprang from a couple of different sources. Um, one being my love of spreadsheets and graphs, uh, which I, I know is a strong start. Uh, my other love uh, being of city builders and uh, real-time strategy games like Crusader Kings. And also uh, the idea that I didn't have to play as only one character. So essentially you play as a horde of rats building your civilization inside a human castle. And the, the gameplay has a series of um, loops that you go through uh, during which you can uh, engage with your other players and tell a story narratively bouncing back and forth. So say you have a group of rats that's going on a heist to steal a piece of technology, so like lighting or uh, words, and uh, your rival player will describe the situation and you can bounce back and forth by creating uh, difficulties for each other. So like the more ruthless you are with your rival player, the more ruthless they're going to be with you, and it's sort of playing off of that. I would say that the best way to play this game is to get as attached to your rats as possible because, like Amy, I'm leaning into the enjoy-killing-your-characters sort of trope. Um, a lot of these rats are going to die. That's why you're supposed to name them and love them and nourish them until they meet their inevitable demise. You can tell that Kendall writes queer horror, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I want to note, regular listeners to More Like Guidelines will know that fairly often, somewhere between 2 to 4 a.m. our respective times, me or Kendall will just send each other a message with, this is something I definitely have to make in the future. Happens quite often. Uh, and yeah, Rats in the Walls was one of these. I just got a message out of nowhere from Candle saying, Jess, I am going to make a game about spreadsheets. <laughs> Thankfully, I think you toned down the uh, bookkeeping a little bit. Oh, yeah, no, it's it, that, it was um, just part of the original. Like, I really love to like make up little worlds and keep track of them. It's, it's sort of a world building simulator for me a little bit. Um, that's why you're encouraged to like name your rats, uh, a big part of the game is like the relationships between them and how they interact and uh, how how you you know build your colony. It, it's something that you can all come up with like organically, uh, and 
you know, write it down, keep track of it, maybe draw a little picture of your, of your thing. It, it was very much like, how can I do a TTRPG sort of city builder without any actual pictures in it? That's fair. Uh, let's see. Roz, would you like to tell us about Terpsichorean? And by the way, bonus points for using the word Terpsichorean in a game title. It's like top 10 words. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I was pitched on a pretentious game anthology and I definitely wanted to lean into that. Um, yeah, for sure. Terpsichorean is kind of a queer sci-fi mecha game uh, from a certain angle. Um this is a game I've been working on on and off for years, uh, uh, to be honest. Um, it kind of sits in my Google Drive, and every now and then I poke at it and prod at it and move some things around. And then this was like the really the perfect opportunity to get it to where it's finished. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a game where you play as women who and women is like a, a kind of an all-encompassing term women of all genders uh or any gender or no gender uh who are put in a position where suddenly these ancient mechs that were um basically ceremonial uh are suddenly needed to defend earth uh and these people who were never meant to be warriors or fighters uh suddenly have to defend uh and fight um and they're kind of looked down upon by the uh by the men who you know uh fight in the army as like you know oh big giant suits of armor that's really a really feminine way to fight war uh meanwhile the men are dying by the droves because they can't stand up to the undefeatable enemy that stands in front of them uh yeah 10 out of 10 for sticking to the assignment. I absolutely love that. mentioned earlier, but every time I open this uh, this document, it's just getting more and more Catholic as well. It's... <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say what it was, but I've read your brief for the illustration. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's, um, <laughs> it's definitely getting a lot more Catholic. I was raised Catholic, um, and I am trans, uh, and... Yeah, it's uh that's like it's that's a whole thing. Uh I saw someone recently just be like I think it was Jay Dragon on Twitter was just like, Am I even trans if I haven't made a mech game that's a metaphor for the violence enacted upon my body? And it's just like, Oh sure, just come right for my throat in public. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh dear um, i'm going to avoid any self you know introspection for now because I've got a kickstarter coming out tomorrow that's the last thing i need uh, i guess it's my turn to talk about some games i've got two and a half games in this book which is fun so i'll cover them a little bit more quickly oh no sorry Roz. first of all we need to know what the ideal way for your game to be played is any particular oh, settings sure. you'd recommend maybe an abandoned um, church if you can find an abandoned catholic church uh then absolutely play it there um i think road trip trip. for sure um i do think i do uh i have kind of a kind of a a pet peeve i guess if we're coming right back to the start of the the start of the episode with games that kind of prescribe uh, a correct way to play um i think we have been doing it jokingly largely so far just to clarify just the idea of listener but oh, yeah, I do, definitely. I do, um, 
yeah, I think I think the games are best played with the the way you're most comfortable for playing games. Like, I think games are best played, you know, in the way that you're most comfortable playing games. Um, you know, the, my game can is diceless and it can be played GM like with a GM or without a GM. And if you feel more comfortable, you know, having a GM play, you know, portray the world use that do that lean into it whatever helps you like get into the fiction and start making things that are interesting to you and exploring those um but equally if you're a real story game wanker like me uh then yeah divvy up the gm responsibilities in the way that's uh, suggested in the game and uh you can kind of really come at the game from a totally different angle lovely stuff so yeah i've got three games to cover Two of which are by me, one of which which is like 50%, 30%. So we'll fly through these. My first game is called uh, Eat Trash and Die, which uh, it wasn't originally going to be for this anthology. It kind of existed first, and then just the two ideas came together, and I think it's a really nice fit. In Eat Trash and Die, you play as goblins or lads, as they also refer to themselves. You have been sent essentially as part of a giant locust-like swarm to just consume everything and reset the world for new life because these uh, these humans are fucked it up. And essentially what you do is you eat trash and then eventually you die. Uh, you start off as halfway between a goblin and a puddle of protoplasmic ooze uh, gradually you will absorb and digest trash from human settlements and grow stronger and more solid and eventually into what we would think of as a goblin. From there, you keep on consuming while evading the detection of the humans because you're still so weak. You know, you're a fucking goblin. There's maybe, what, five of you? But as you're eating trash, you are allocating points to grow certain parts of your body. You can swap out limbs for... There's hooks, tendrils, shovels, claws, pincers, bits of your face you can change. And as you put more points into each of these pieces, they get bigger. So you might have one goblin with a giant crushing jaw. And instead of uh, where you would normally expect to see a right arm on a goblin, there is basically just a giant snow shovel that it's using to funnel things into its mouth to grow faster and faster. Or you could spread out your points throughout your goblin evenly, grow it to essentially be what you would expect in terms of proportion, but massive. And eventually, when you reckon you've got it, or when the humans notice you and you're just not ready, you take the fight to the humans. It isn't necessarily a game with a happy ending for anyone, but it's real fucking fun. Uh, The way I would recommend playing that game is under a bridge. Just like a troll. Yeah, honestly. Avoiding humans. 100%. Uh, my second original game for this is called Blackout. You can apply a lot of different genres to it. And essentially, this is a game that does require some illustrations to explain. But you play by using... There's no dice, no cards. You've just got a sheet or multiple sheets of text, depending on the kind and length of game you're playing. And you play the game by redacting text on the sheet or by folding it and twisting it, scribbling on it to create new sentences. And you're using these sentences in kind of a poetic analogue form to tell the story of what your character is doing. 
it's real wanky, but it's also a lot easier to play than it sounds like. The way I'd recommend that one, playing that one, is in a cafe in a bookshop when we're all allowed to do that again. Uh, shall we have one more question? Yes. Oh, no, there's one last game I forgot to mention, which we mentioned earlier that there's a game from this very podcast in the book. Uh, this is the one made by myself, Goji, and Laura K. Buzz. It is called Kissing in the Weird Future. It is a game about monsters doing a kiss in the weird future. And as soon as we finished recording that episode, I knew that I needed to write up a longer version, a more substantial version, properly play test it and balance it and get it in this book. I'm so excited for that to come out. I'm so excited. It's going to be such a good addition. Uh, there are two other games, one by McGuffin and Company and one by Jolly Boat. Without them here, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I can let you know that McGuffin and Company's game is called Crossroads, and it is about two game masters vying for control of the party to get them co- to complete certain hidden objectives. And uh, Jolly Boat's game is called Love Me, Love Me Not, and it is a game played by destroying an origami rose. Can't wait to be able to show you more about that one. Does anyone have anything else they'd like to bring up about the book or about their game or anything else we've covered today uh, while I see if we have one last question? I'm glad to see that we all went with things that end happily and are good for everyone. That's really a nice theme running through the whole book. Just nice, happy endings. Okay, hang on. Let's fly through the list. Uh, My game, we've got Humans Are a Problem and Inevitable Death and artsy poetry bullshit. Candle, uh, we have Small Animal Death. Amy, we've got Regular-Sized Human Death. Cat, everyone's a dickhead. Roz, there's a whole lot going on there. Crossroads is Strife Between Two GMs. And love me, love me not, we've got heartbreak, potentially. Yeah, everything is fine for everyone. Sorted. Oh my god. Well, they're pretentious games for villains and bastards. Uh, It might be a little sad at times, but it's about the story. Yeah, I mean, maybe by villain and bastard terms, this is as good as it gets, you know? This is the ideal artsy game. Great note to end a podcast on. Uh, I'm going to leave us on... One more question, which we can probably get some quite quick answers to. I'm just going to drop it into the Discord channel we're using. Feel free to just jump in, anyone who's got an answer for this. Do you have a favourite game mechanic that you've written into a game? Yes. Yes, my absolute favourite game mechanic that I've put into a game. Uh, I've got a game called The Rain Still Falls in My Heart, which is a melodramatic uh, lesbian anime high school game. And, of course, and part of character creation to that is that you are, your character is, like, hopelessly infatuated with the character of the player sitting to your left. And so part of that, part of uh, of character creation is turning to that player and gushing at them about what it is you find attractive about them. Specifically mentioning uh, their voice, their eyes, their hands... And the way they carry themselves. Oh, that's very nice. Um, it's I just, love it's that. the absolute, it's my favorite thing I've written. Um, and like a lot of my games, it's just an excuse to flirt with your friends. I'm a big fan of the get along chart in Rats in the Walls. 
Oh, I love the get along jars. Yeah, it's just the way that different rats of different personalities and archetypes interact with each other and how well a group of rats will get along during a heist. Yeah, I have a mechanic in Slasher that is a fairly big part of it, wherein if you die an appropriately dramatic in-character death, according to your archetype, you get little points to help your friends from beyond the grave as they continue to play, which I I could see as being very fun to just encourage people to go all out with having a very dramatic death, because it'll help your friends out later. I like that that's a very tangible, well, not physically tangible, but a very understandable, quantifiable reward for playing a character in a certain way. And also it gives you something to do after death. Uh, Kat, do you have any particular mechanics you'd like to mention? Uh, yeah, I'll talk about Protagonish since we're advertising our games. Um, my favourite thing in Protagonish is that character creation is meant to be pretty quick and I have an encouragement to chuck characters that you get bored of and just create a new one and bring them in. Um, I personally find that sometimes you'll create a character that just won't quite work and games like D&D can sometimes be a little bit awkward for throwing a new person in there. And I think it's just fun to be like, fuck this guy, he's boring. I'm going to play <laughs> this one now. All right. I hope we have given you some useful and informative information, sure, about Pretentious Games for Villains and Bastards. You can find that by searching Pretentious Games on Kickstarter right now or going to at DHB underscore games on Twitter. Uh, we are doing this game on a share-based system, so straight up, just the more money the project makes, the more money we all make on an equally increase. Jess, Jess has entered Jess. the null zone. Jess. Jess. Hey, so my PC crashed. Oh, no! <laughs> um, can someone record an outro? <laughs> Candle? you very much for listening to more light guidelines i have been candle and i am currently jess i am joined by cat and uh amy and roz and we are some of the authors involved in pretentious games for villains and bastards now available on kickstarter go on and give us your money thanks bye <laughs>